Hello, hello. Oh, cool. Okay. Hi, good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. Thank you, Ian. It's really a privilege to get to be here and open the scriptures with you this morning. And we are going to talk about this morning in the context of the Mission Mission of God series that Ian has been teaching through. We're going to talk about the theology of work and the role of vocational calling in the kingdom of God. And I believe that Ian, and I believe that you believe this too, very much lives out his calling. Because almost every Sunday when Bob and I leave, we go, wow, I've never really thought about the text that way. Or, hmm, I really need to chew on that. And I'm so grateful to sit under his teaching. And I bet you are too. And some of you might be thinking, really? Ian isn't speaking this morning? He's not the one giving the sermon? I just want you to know two things. We can talk about that. One, I don't blame you. And two, I don't take it personally because most of you don't know me at all. And it reminded me of my friend, Sarah Jane, who um, was Kristen Chenoweth. For those of you who don't know, Kristen Chenoweth is a very iconic Broadway actress. So my friend, Sarah Jane, was Kristen Chenoweth's understudy in Wicked in the role of Glinda. And so with self-effacing humor, Sarah Jane talks about what it's like to be standing in the, so she enters the stage in this metal bubble. So there's bubbles everywhere in a way only Broadway can do. And so Glinda enters the stage suspended in air on a metal bubble. And Sarah Jane talks about being poised on her metal bubble, waiting for the curtain to open. And she hears the man on the loudspeaker say, Glinda today will be played by Sarah Jane Everman. And then she says, you hear the collective groan of disappointment from the crowd. And she said, what's so ironic about it is that Glinda's first words in this play are, it's good to see me isn't it? (laughs) So I think that's funny. And I think you might be feeling a little bit like that this morning. And I want you to know that's okay because God is real. He's alive. His scripture have power and his spirit is at work. So I know we've prayed a lot today, but maybe even just for my sake, if you join me again in asking Jesus to meet us. Lord God of heaven and earth, we worship you. You alone are God. You are creator and we are the created ones. You are the rescuer and we're the ones in needing rescue. It's your mission that you invite us by your grace and mercy to participate in. So we surrender to you, God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that any way the evil one would want to create shame or comparison or, um, uh, Lord, any way the evil one would want to diminish who each person here this is this morning, including me, we declare your authority in this place and ask that you'd push back the darkness in every way. I pray that you would increase and that I would decrease, that you'd calm my heart and help me breathe deeply, and that you'd have your way and bring glory to yourself. Jesus, would you mobilize us as a people to bring your righteousness and beauty and justice and shalom to the world? And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Bob and I talk often about the reality that really we are in, we are entering into the third, uh, the last third of our life. Now we don't know for sure, nobody knows for sure, but statistically we are. And that we talk about how we want to leave it all on the court, that we want to put a kick in our step step proverbially, to really end strong at the finish line. And part of that comes because the first two-thirds of our life, we've seen the kindness and goodness and privilege of walking with Jesus. Because what's true is that when we remember his deeds, he increases our faith. 
And I have found great comfort over the years in a verse in Acts 17 that says, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, for he himself gives almond life and breath and everything else. So when we think about the mission of God, it brings me comfort to go, Jesus doesn't really need us, but he invites us into the privilege of participating with him. And I see that because he doesn't need me, he always has placed me in places where he wants to grow my character, where he wants to heal me, where he wants to reveal who he is to me, and where he wants me to walk in greater freedom as I learn more about who he is as I live on mission with him. And one of the seasons of my life that was particularly significant in my growth is when I had the privilege of working on a partnership with Crew Campus Ministry. I worked on staff with Crew for 32 years. So I got to work on a a partnership with Crew Campus Ministry and International Justice Mission, or IJM. So I don't know if you know this, it's a sobering statistic, but the last global estimate is that there are 49.6 million people enslaved today, a quarter of which are children. It's mind-boggling, mind-boggling, not blogging, boggling. And IJM partners with the rule of law among people around the world to protect those in poverty from slavery, violence, and unjust police forces. IJM was started by a man named Gary Haugen. Gary Haugen is a lawyer, and in 1994, he was appointed by the United Nations and the, and the um, State Department to actually do the investigation around the Rwanda genocide. I don't know if you know, but there were, in a, hundred, a period of 100 days, there were over 500 to 600,000 people brutally massacred in Rwanda. So Gary talks about in his story when he showed up and saw the mass destruction of human life. He said, I was deeply grieved and I was very angry. And I said, God, where were you? And he says in his spirit, he sensed the Lord saying, no, no, Gary, where were my people? And that Gary then, it launched him on a process of starting IJM. He realized in a deep and profound way that God could use his vocational calling as a lawyer to bring the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, the righteousness and justice of God for a people so near and dear to the very heart of God, some of the most marginalized people in the entire world. A child in slavery would qualify as one of the most marginalized people in the entire world. And so he said, Um, I am going to offer my life back to God because of his grace just to use my vocational calling to be a part of literally setting people free. During that season of my life, I also got the privilege of lobbying our members of Congress to ask them to consider giving a very small amount of money with huge benefit to end the trafficking in persons. And the training was given by a woman named Holly Burkholter. Now, as she talked, I was like, this woman has had prolific impact in impacting human rights and and for, for good. And so after she got done with the training, I went up to her and I said, share your, what's your story? And she said, well, I'm left politically. I will forever be left politically. And I was an atheist because I had seen so much pain and human hardship in the world that I thought there cannot be a God. 
And if there is a God, I do not want to know him. And then she said, and then I met Gary Haugen and his colleagues, and I watched some of the smartest, most resourced people in the world give their lives to literally go into the jaws of evil for the freedom and dignity of all people. And she said, I began to think, hmm, maybe there is a God. And Holly came to Christ, and now she works with IJM as their government, um, the one that leads government relationships. Holly came to Christ in part because she experienced the righteousness and justice and shalom of God through God's people with IJM. God revealed himself to her in that way. I think of the mission of God. His mission is to reveal his glory and bring his redemption among the nations. And I have a graphic here, and it all starts with God's love for us. He's given us mandates, three mandates. One is the great commandment. He says, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. At first, I was going to make concentric circles that had three, and I thought, no, this, the great commandment permeates all that God calls us to do, and that it's in response to God's passionate, affectionate, loyal, hesed love for us. And that as he shapes us into our image, he, he says that the mark of maturity is actually someone's capacity to spontaneously love people. I don't mean just love your husband or wife or your children or even the body of Christ. It's the capacity to love your enemies. That's the invitation and mandate of God. And in that context, he's given us two more mandates. One is the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus as he ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And I am with you forever, that love. I am with you forever to the very end of the age. And for many, many years in my life with Jesus, I talked a lot about the Great Commandment and I talked a lot about the Great Commission. And through my work with IJM, God began me on a journey that said, whoa, I have an emaciated view of what God's kingdom and redemption in life is all about. So today we're going to talk most about the cultural mandate that God has given us. And I believe that work and vocational calling fall under the cultural mandate that God has given us to um, co-create with him, to be a people that brings his justice and righteousness and shalom and hope to a world that is absolutely desperate. So today we're going to look at the theology of work using the grand narrative of scripture as the context. This will inform us about the role of our vocational calling as it relates to the mission and kingdom of God. We will find that a rhythm of work and rest is foundational to human flourishing and that our vocational calling is designed to bring glory to God, again, as we are agents of his righteousness, hope, and shalom in a dying world. I want to give you a couple of caveats. One is that this conversation today in this room is one of incredible privilege. There are millions of people in the world that have little to no choice about how they will make a living wage to feed their family. The fact that we can go, what do I want to do with my life? That is a question that comes with incredible privilege. And that I think we are some of the most privileged people in the world alive today, and arguably probably some of the most privileged people that have ever existed through all of eternity. I don't say that to be to create guilt because God is not a guilt, a guilt-driven God, but I think it's true. And where much is given, much will be required.
that's my first caveat. Secondly, I would say I'm not an expert on this, far from it. And that I will share many things today that did not originate in my brain. So I want to give credit where credit is due. So when you read these books, you're like, well, Carrie said that. She just copied what they said. Yes, I did. And that's why I'm giving credit where credit is due. So I would highly recommend, there's a lot of books. Tim Keller wrote a great book on it. But Garden City by John Mark Comer, Kingdom Calling by Amy Sherman, and Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. So when we look at the... Grand narrative of scripture, most scholars would say that scripture is divided into four parts and that everything we read in the Bible will fit in one of these. And so the four parts are, um, they are creation, how it all started, the fall, what went wrong, redemption, is there hope and restoration, the best is yet to come. Today, I want to focus mostly on redemption because it's where we're living in the suspended already not yet of the kingdom, and it's where our vocational calling invites us to be as agents of shalom and hope in the world. But I think it's important that we get the whole context. And Ian has done a lot of teaching on creation from Roman, Romans. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So I'm going to fly through that pretty quickly, but I think it's important to realize two things. One is that God worked. Scripture's open with the reality that God is a God who works. Now, it's not hard for him to work. There's no striving in his work. He could create the world just as easily. He could lift up this chair. Like there's no, on a continuum, he works with ease and joy and creative imagination. He spoke the world into existence and we get to experience all of his glory in that, even now. So God worked and then he rested. That's powerful, isn't it? So work is not something that came after the fall. It's what's embedded in the person of God and given to us as we are image bearers of the living God. And so God created the world, he spoke it into existence, and then he created man, and he uses, and women, he created word, he uses words like, I've given you rule and dominion. I've planted this garden, I want you to cultivate it. I want you to build, I want you to create, I want you to flourish, I want you to multiply. The invitation of God in creation is to be co-creators with him and to flourish. And there's even obscure things, Ian had this in his sermon a couple weeks ago, but things like there's gold and onyx and resin, and you're like, that is the most bizarre thing kind of inserted there. But I think it's because he says, I've given you resources, cool resources to create. And that when we see in the end of restoration, that we are in a city, a garden city, a beautiful city, but there are things that man has created as they co-create with God in all of creation. So he gives us rule, he gives us rulership. There's king and queen language. He gives us dignity and satisfaction and joy. He says, I want you to co-create with me. Now, co-creation isn't because God needs us to co-create with him. Remember, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but it's kind of like if you've ever had a child help you make cookies. I don't have children. That's a grief for Bob and me both, but it's, it's a longer story, but I've had nieces and nephews help me make cookies. And as you have allowed your children to help you, you realize it's not truly help. But you're doing it because you're inviting that child into deeper relationship. You're enjoying that process with that child. And you are developing that child into a human being that could someday make cookies on their own. 
we would never be independent of God. But it's the same idea, I think. He doesn't need us, but he invites us because he loves us and he enjoys that time with us. And he wants us to grow as his people. So it creates a great picture of work, right? But I know it's Sunday and you might tonight have some Sunday blues. You know why? Because we had the big fall and that it impacted everything about our lives. And it also impacted our view of work and our experience of work. In Genesis, it says that God said this to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful toil, you will eat through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. That's such a powerful picture. Like if you've ever gotten a thorn, thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. From it, you are taken for dust you are, and to dust you will return. We're no longer in the garden. It's true. We're no longer in the garden. And that work, God says, now by the sweat of your brow, you will toil to make a living. And some of the ways that this manifests itself in our broken world, we don't have to look very far, starting with my own heart. But corrupt business is corrupted as people at the top line their pockets without giving those below them a fair wage. The media journalists spin a story to get viewership. On the right and the left, that happens all the time. People are exploited, dehumanized, and sexualized in the entertainment industry in order to make a profit. Consumerism, from coffee to diamonds, in the first world countries, um, result in atrocious working conditions, even slavery for the poor in the developing world. Out of sight, out of mind. I have no idea how I'm contributing to that, but every day. And then there's the drudgery of work, the Sunday night blues, or the struggle with I feel lazy, like our slothfulness sets in. And then we swing over, and all of a sudden I'm a workaholic, and my identity and value becomes wrapped up in my vocation or what I do. I read an article um, in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson, and this is what he says about workism. He relates workism to a religion. He says, for the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with the explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregates. What is workism? It is a belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece, emphasis mine, on one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must also encourage more work. He goes on to say, the American dream that that hoary mythology that hard work always guarantees upward mobility has for more than a century made the U.S. obsessed with material success and the exhaustive striving required to earn it. Anyone relate? I do. I'm repenting all the time of how my uh, identity is wrapped up in what I do and my productivity. So if left here, it's quite somber. But we know that God 
said to Adam and Eve, he pursued them after they made that choice to rebel against him. He covered them. He banished them from the garden out of kindness so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live in this sinful, broken world forever. And he set the trajectory of redemption in motion. Through Abraham, he promises that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through David, he says, I will raise up a benevolent, righteous, sovereign, good king. And at just the right time, through a Jewish little girl, God became one of us. And that he would take on the sins of corruption, the sins of deceit, and the abuse of people and resources. The thorns and thistles of work will become a crown of thorns on his head. And he says, by your stripes, you are healed. And that he heals not just our relationship with him, but our relationships with one another and the fullness of all of creation. His death, life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for all of redemption needed in the whole of life. It says in Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God, through his blood shed on the cross, he, he threw, um, through the people of Israel, he always works through a people. So he worked through the people of Israel to bring the Messiah. Now he says, I'm going to work through my people, the church, of which I am the head. And I am going to dwell among you. I'm going to deposit my spirit in your midst. And I'm going to take you back to that original mandate to co-create with me, to be a people of shalom and righteousness and justice, a people of hope in a world that lives all the time in the brokenness. And so we co-create it with him. We have a cultural mandate. And part of that is to bring shalom to the world. It says in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, it's the people of Israel that have been exiled to Babylon, which we know is really important in history, and that God calls a people that are in exile to bring prosperity to the world around them. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We are exiles aliens, strangers. We're citizens of heaven, and yet God has placed us right where you are, on your street, in your neighborhood, in your classroom, um, in your place of work. And he says, I want you to seek the prosperity of the world around you, wherever that is. That peace and prosperity is shalom, and it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire among enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. What a beautiful picture that God says, I live among you, I love you, and I am your head, and I am inviting you to bring my peace and prosperity 
overwhelming well-being to the world around you. And I will use your vocational calling as part of that. A couple of weeks ago, we had a fall festival in our backyard, and I coined the phrase, maybe I didn't coin it, maybe I heard it before, I can't remember, but shalomi. It felt very shalomi. It felt shalomi because it, was, it felt like a foretaste of what is to come in the kingdom of God that runs parallel to the kingdom of this world. We experienced people from 18 different nations, and there was an abundance of food and laughter and fun and games that the Spirit of God was evidence in our midst bringing shalom and bringing a foretaste of what is to come. We are so grateful for that. Like he called Gary Hagen and IJM, he also calls us to be a people of righteousness, a people of justice. I have a friend named Miriam who has become very, very dear to me, and she is Iranian, and she has not yet come to know Christ, but in the midst of the um, protests in Iran, she came over one evening and was weeping. But in that process, she said, there has to be a God because there has to be justice in the world for all the evil. She's in touch with the reality that evil is not right and it cannot remain and God agrees with her. And he says, I'm gonna raise you up as a people and I'm gonna use your vocational calling to bring the justice and the righteousness in the world that would reveal who I am. Proverbs 11:10 said, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are, there are shouts of joy. Miriam understands that. Amy Sherman in Kingdom Calling, which I highly recommend her book, says it like this as it relates to vocational calling. She says, learning how to steward our vocational power, that alone is powerful. How do we steward our vocational power is a major component of growing as the, how do you say that, Ian? Sakim, mm-hmm righteous, um, who rejoice our cities. By vocational stewardship, I mean the intentional and strategic deployment of our vocational power, knowledge, platforms, networks, position, influence, skills, and reputations to advance the foretaste of the kingdom of God. It's not to advance my bank account. It's not to advance my position in the company. It's not to advance how I feel good about myself. It's to advance from a place of security and identity the foretaste of the kingdom of God. And I had a great time brainstorming what this might look like because vocational callings and the work God has called you to is as different as everybody in this room. And so I think of the PhD students that I met in the past year, bless you for those PhD students in the world. I think that, or people that have PhDs, we stand on the shoulders of the research that these men and women have done in incredible obscurity, hard, hard, hard work of a lot of labor. And one of my friends, our friends, Jessica Jin, for, for people that are PhD students, Bob and I say, so what's your burning question? And I usually say, tell it to me like I'm in sixth grade. So Jessica has told me multiple times what she's researching, but yesterday I texted her, could you do it again in really simple terms? And this is what she did, said, my research is in our cells, proteins are important to keep us healthy. Occasionally, our cells can make mistakes or mutations when making proteins. I study how harmful mutations can lead to diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and how we can equip our proteins with good mutations to resist disease. My mother-in-law passed away, wonderful woman, from Parkinson's. 
And I read that and I think she is spending countless hours of pursuing excellence to bring the character of God and shalom and to bless the world because Alzheimer's and Parkinson's is broken. It's not the way God's designed us. And she's bringing a foretaste of heaven to say, this is who our God is. This is what we're made for. Secondarily, Jessica is teaching a freshman class because that's part of her job. And I said, so Jessica, how did I do? And she goes, it was like tasting chocolate for the first time and I never want to stop eating chocolate. And I saw her light up and I was like, yes, 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 you need to do that because God brings his delight to us as we're living out who he's made us to be to bring shalom and delight to the world. Or I think of my friend Destiny, who is a woman who is an an actor. She's African-American, and she would go to our auditions, and she'd say, Carrie, the women that are auditioning for the roles that I'm auditioning for, I see them all the time because we're all fighting for the same role. She said, what if I actually stopped seeing them as my competitors and started creating environments where we can all get better? So she started an organization called Bold, where she gathered her African-American women friends and they wrote transcripts, they wrote, not transcripts, yes, transcripts together. They, um, they actually rehearsed their auditions together, the same audition that all of them are competing for. They helped one another get better. Destiny, through her vocational calling, was bringing the beauty and foretaste of heaven of God through her calling. My mother, I'm the youngest of seven children, She was one of the most sacrificial, hardworking people I have ever met. And not only did she keep us clothed and bathed, and sometime bathed, but clothed and bathed and fed, um, she also brought beauty. Every Sunday morning, she'd go pick flower, wildflowers. I grew up on a farm, and she would make a centerpiece for our table. And it has shaped me as I entertain that she bring, brought beauty and fun to our home. She brought shalom. She's bringing shalom through her seven children who are impacting the world around them because of her influence. I think about subway drivers and trash collectors in New York City. If you've ever lived in New York City, something Bob said I thought that's so true is that you notice when they don't do their work and people grumbling and complain, but when they do their, their work, you don't even think about it. But my point in this is that there is no big or little call. God calls all people to surrender to him and he invites them to co-create with them to bring shalom. And he calls us to be people of character in the midst of our work to say whatever he's calling you to do, he can use it to bring shalom in the world. Taylor Swift has a new album out. So one of my social media friends said this, thank God for the artists and the makers who create moments and mark time, offering soundtrack and imagery for the human experience. I say, oh God, would you raise up men and women connected to you, passionate about the things that you're passionate about that are gonna bring your beauty through music and arts to the world that opens our heart to the existence and reality of God. Tony Bennett. Now, there'd be a lot of corruption in the NCAA in athletics, I do believe. And Tony Bennett, who's the um, basketball coach at the University of Virginia for the first time in history, though they've had an excellent program, won the national championship in 2019. They gave him a raise of over a million dollars. And he said, no, thank you. I have enough money. Um, You can just give it to the rest of the program and other people that work for me. My guess is Tony Bennett, who is a follower of Jesus, also takes a lot of time to develop the character of the men that he works with and affirm them and love them and um, be a part of their life. 
I think of my friend Ryan who started their RUNA project, which is an organization that employs women that have come out of prostitution in India. They make these beautiful bags that they sell for profit, and all the proceeds go back to the women who do that. Teachers. I was a teacher for two years in the public school during a pandemic. Let me tell you, public school teachers, your job is really important. I cannot imagine what a world would be like where there are not men and women that help children learn how to read, that see something in the life of a child that um, perhaps no one in the world has seen, and to cultivate that and bring it to life. Um, I could go on and on, but I want to just say, how you do your job matters. God's called us in the great commandment to be people of character, to be people who um, walk in a different attitude as we walk into work on Monday morning. But it's also a journey and not static. Many of you are young and you're like, okay, Jesus, what's my vocational calling? I would say some of you are in a role that 10 years from now you will not be in. And that's part of God's design, I think. I've never thought I'd be standing here today doing what I'm doing. But anyway, that's a side note. It's a static and it's a journey that sometimes I think God values the intimacy with him as you seek him and listen to him and pay attention to your life and the world around you. That he's like, keep coming to me. This process I really like when he says, my sheep hear my voice and know my name then he's asking for intimacy. We have to tune our hearts and minds to who he is. So lean into the journey, celebrate the journey, focus not on the destination, but the reality of who God is as he shapes your life. So I gave a lot of examples and that collectively we impact the world because we live out of our uniqueness. That some of you are PhD students, and I'm very grateful. Some of you are teachers, and I'm very grateful. Some of you are staying at home with your children and working very hard um, as a mom. But that, that um, God uses us collectively to bring about shalom to the world because of our uniqueness. So there is no greater or, or lesser call. All are sacred People that are called to ministry are not more spiritual than people that are working in the marketplace. All of it's sacred. Now, vocation comes out of who God's made us to be. God reveals it to us. We don't have to seek it. Parker Palmer says this, vocation does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening. I must listen to my life and try to understand what it is truly about quite apart from what I would like it to be about, or my emphasis, or what others might like it to be about, or my life will never represent anything real in the world, no matter how earnest my intentions. That insight is hidden in the word vocation itself, which is rooted in the Latin for voice. Vocation does not mean a goal that I pursue. It means a calling that I hear. Before I can tell my my life, what I want to do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. I must listen for the truth and values at the heart of my own identity, not the standards by which I cannot help but live if I am living. Oh, did I get that wrong? I must listen for the truth and values at the heart of my own identity, not the standards by which I must live, but the standards by which I cannot help but live when I am living my own life.
And that that requires intimacy with Jesus. It requires creating space for the spirit to surface um, what you're passionate about, what your resources are, what makes you pound the table. It also requires a community that we need one another to help us live that out. It's also true that um, we are placed, each of us are placed for this season in history right now, and there are needs in the world all around you. So vocational calling isn't just about what am I made to do. It's also about how does it meet the world's deepest needs. Bigner says, at what point do God's, do God's priorities for the world, I add that, my talents and my gladness meet the world's deepest needs? Now, when we collectively say, Holy Spirit, um, will you raise us up as a people? Would you give us grace as individuals and individually and in a community to think through what have you put in me and what is the world's deepest needs and lead me as I offer my life back to you to be a part of bringing your righteousness and justice and shalom to the world. You see, what's true is that when we think about what's to come in restoration, the best is yet to come. And John Mark Comer in his book, Garden City, had some very profound kind of paradigm shaping things for me that I must study more. But here's some things we know. Revelation 21, one through five says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We live among thorns and thistles. God calls us to be a part of a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that reveals the righteousness and shalom and redemption and hope of what is to come. And this is true, that one day we get to be with him and we're going to live with him forever. And John Mark Comer talks about that um, we actually will get to live out our vocational calling in the new earth. And that we get to participate with God in creating even into eternity. And N.T. Wright says, What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. So men and women, in Jesus, you are secure. Your identity is not wrapped up in what you do. From a place of his belovedness and his security, he has gifted you, he has built into you passion, and he invites you to co-create with him, to live out the cultural mandate, to reveal to the world who he is. So here's some questions for reflection in light of the four-part narrative of the Bible. Under creation, who has God made me to be or who has God made you to be as his image bearer? What delights your heart? What makes you pound the table? When do you feel most alive? In the fall, what in your industry is broken? And how do you derive your identity from your work? 
Redemption. What's the redemptive edge of your vocational calling? Ian talks about his friend John and the um, sayings he gets from him. Redemptive edge is one of his um, words that think through uh, where in my industry can I see redemption happen for the world? So what's the redemptive edge of your vocational calling? How might you be an agent of hope, righteousness, and shalom in your area of calling? How is Jesus inviting you to co-create with him? How can you best steward the talents, passions, and resources he's given you? And then restoration. What might your industry or calling look like during eternity? What would it be like to live out your vocational calling free of sin, shame, and brokenness? Because that will get to happen. And how does that motivate you? Some thoughts for your reflection as you sit with Jesus. Let me pray for you. God of heaven and earth, we do worship you. And um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in us, that there'd be holy agitations, that you would uh, breathe life, God, into your calling and your hand on our life, and that you would raise us up collectively as a community in Princeton to bring your righteousness and justice and shalom and hope to the world. Thank you, God, for these men and women in this time. Amen.